This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm here today with my dear colleague and friend, Mike Husseem. And before we begin, I want to remind everyone that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. So, Mike, so nice to see you today. How are you, Mike? I'm doing great, Anne. Great to see you. So if you're good, I'm good. We're both good. (laughs) We're both good. And, Mike, you know, we are in for a treat today because we have on the show with us two guests, two guests who have written a new book, and our guests are Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson. They are the authors of You Can Change Other People. The Four Steps to Help Your Colleagues, Employees, Even Family, Up Their Game. Peter and Howie, welcome to Leadership in Action. Thank you so much for having us, Anne and Michael. We're excited to be here. Yep, looking forward to this. (laughs) Very good. So let me just say a little bit about you before we begin. Uh, Peter, Peter, you are the CEO of Bregman Partners and an executive coach to C-level executives in many of the world's premier organizations. City, CBS, Mars, Showtime, just to name a few. Uh, You've written other books as well. And one, for example, is Leading with Emotional Courage. Another is 18 Minutes. (laughs) And Howie, Howie Jacobson. Howie, you are the director of coaching at Bregman Partners and the head coach at the Healthy Minds Initiative. You also host um, a podcast called Plant Yourself Podcast, where you interview remarkable people engaged in healing at the individual, institutional, and planetary level. So Peter and Howie, how about, first, you know, I have have a question for you. How did the two of you meet? Peter, I'm gonna turn to you. How did you meet Howie? So I, uh, this is back, 75 years ago. <laughs> uh, no, um, it was probably about 20, it was probably the year 2000 or, or late late 90s or early. I started this company in 98. So it was the early days of starting the company. And I was uh, in, uh, I think I was either living in Princeton at the time or my wife was working at Princeton and, and I was there. But in any event, a good friend of ours, we had a mutual friend and I met Howie. Howie was a teacher uh, at the time, and we had a conversation, if I'm remembering correctly, about change or organization change, or I can't remember exactly what the conversation was, but I really liked him, and I and I was uh, working on an article, and, and I guess I was sort of thinking through the article with him, and I shared it with him, and I hadn't figured out some aspect of it. And he seemed interested. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll share the article with you. And there's a couple of books that, you know, given our conversation, I think you would be interested in reading. And by the end of the weekend, he had read both books and finished the article and like resolved the issue that I was trying to resolve. And I don't remember what the issue was. I just remember thinking, 
this is a really smart guy who I really, really like. I want to work with him. And so uh, I think like within a couple of days, he was working with me at Bregman Partners. So nice. And how you were a teacher at the time. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. What were you teaching? Oh, I was at a, a small K through eight Quaker school. So I was teaching whatever they needed taught. Um, and I had just the reason I was interested in talking to Peter is I had just completed a doctorate um, helping middle schoolers cope with stress. And I'd introduced all these wonderful programs to schools, and I had just collected the, the, the you know, two-month follow-up data and discovered that absolutely nothing had changed. It was like I threw the biggest rock I could find into the pond. The ripples were amazing, and I came back, and nothing had happened. Everything had gone back to exactly the way it was. And here's Peter talking about organizational change, which is something I had never explored before. And he was talking about methods called coaching, of, of which was different from teaching. And I was like, this is exactly what I need if I really want to have an impact in the world and not just, you know, have fun and be a hero for the moment and have it all go up in smoke. So great. I'm going to bring Mike in in just a moment, but Howie, can I follow your lead there? Say a little bit more about the difference between coaching and teaching. Mike and I are both uh, teachers and at times, at least I know in my teaching role, I've occasionally thought of myself as a coach. So say a little more about the difference. Yeah, I mean, there certainly is, you know, overlap in in practice, but, uh, but it's sort of in, you know, sort of pure platonic forms. I think of teaching as I've got knowledge that I got to cram into you somehow. <laughs> and coaching is you've got capabilities and insights and capacity for action that you may not have fully realized, and I'm going to be your partner in helping you get there. All right. And Howie, in that answer, I hear a connection to your book, because we're talking about how do we change others? And the word on the street is that that is nearly impossible to do, <laughs> that people like to change themselves. But I'm just going to pause there and turn back to you, Peter, and just say, how did you come to write this book together with Howie? What was the inspiration? Um, you know, the, I mean, actually, this might be better for Howie to describe because Howie was the instigator to writing this book. So let me let me punt this over Great. to Howie uh, as to like how how we ended up down the path. Yeah. So I I uh, I became a Peter Bregman workshop junkie starting in 2014. So every time he he taught a course on how to how to be a better coach, uh, I would attend. And in 2019, in the spring, uh, I was there at Esalen, as Peter was teaching this course. And there's about, you know, I don't know, 18, 20 of us in the room. And Peter announced this was the last time he was going to teach the course. And it was this was the, sort of at the end, and I was so fully immersed in this methodology, and I saw all these people around me, some of whom were already successful professional coaches, be so positively influenced and inspired and increased capability with the methodology that Peter was teaching that I kind of had a bit of a hissy fit. And I said, you can't stop sharing this methodology. And, you know, it, did, it doesn't actually didn't actually work with Peter's business plans for the next year or two, We you know. Luck, luck, you know, good, good, good thinking, Peter, that you canceled all live workshops in late 2019. <laughs> that was very uh, prescient. Um, but, 
you know, the, the, the result of the hissy fit was like, we've got this material is too good to not be out in the world. And in fact, it's too good to just share with 20 people at a time. So somehow, you know, Peter did a little jujitsu and, and there I was in front of a, a word processor for the next two years. <laughs> so great. Well, let me just say uh, I'm in Greenhall and here with Mike, you and together we're talking with Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson about their new book. You can change other people. And Mike, I'm going to give you the floor here. Get your voice in here. All right, Anne. Thank you. And Howie and Peter, great to have you on the program. Especially great given the title of your book, which almost seems like an oxymoron. Anne already alluded to this. So the title is You Can Change Other People. And as Anne put it, the word on the street is that's especially tough, maybe especially with your partner. We've often heard the phrase, change yourself. Uh, you're not going to change your partner. So that said, uh, Howie, maybe beginning with you, uh, what has led to your sense of optimism or confidence that you can indeed buck the at least the common saying, you really can't change people once their basic personality and their basic persona is well-formed? So Howie, let's begin with you. What what gives you the sense of optimism about that that statement? Um, just that I do it all the time and that Peter does it all the time. And we, you know, we coach each other and Peter has in half an hour, um, gotten me to, to look at an issue that I was facing from a place of, of resentment and victimhood and given me, um, the ability to see where I have power and I can, I then go off and I make huge strides and the truth is, it wouldn't have happened without that conversation. And both of us are, are executive coaches, and both of us see that the power of conversation to influence people to change what they're doing um, is, you know, it's it's a it's an everyday fact of life. We're changing each other all the time. Now, a lot of the times, we change the people around us for the worse, right? <laughs> Someone comes home in a good mood, and I can have them angry and depressed in ten minutes flat. Like that's changing them. So if I can do that, why why can't I also change them for the better? And uh, you know, it, it was really you know, Peter is the my teacher in in this, my teacher and coach, um, in in just saying like it's not it's not only you know sort of happenstance and lightning, but there is there is a process, there's a reliable process that we can take people through to get them to up their game. So Peter, just to pick up a net and then throw the baton in your direction. Just thinking about your relationship with Howie over the years, what do you think is the biggest way he has changed you? No, it's a great question. And I, and I, um, there's little things that I could point to that are material, but I think what's most important is that I just, I think I, Howie helps me be a better person, like through contagion. You know, Howie has deep integrity and is, you know, and not 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 a moralistic deep integrity, you know, like an integrity that's fun, uh, you know, but deeply ethical, deeply integrous. And and I I I feel like I'm a better person when I'm with Howie. And and I, you know, I we all like to impress the people around us, and I like to um, I want to show up in a way that meets the expectations that Howie has, and he's never harsh about them, and he's never, 
he never holds anything over me and he never, you know, like I never, I don't feel any of that pressure at all, but I just sort of like, you know, like what would Howie do? Yeah, Peter, well put. Howie, let me reverse the question then and then hand the baton back to Anna just a second. Uh, in the book, you repeatedly stress the importance of trying to help people not get their back up, to borrow that phrase, to not adversely react to, to a, a good suggestion you might have. So, Howie, as you've had, uh, well, so many conversations over the years with Peter, how has he helped you not get your back up, not resist what he might be suggesting you ought to do? Well, what's the magic formula there? Well, so the, the first thing is that uh, I never feel judged, hmm. right? That, that Peter is you know, curious about what I'm going through, always empathetic. So, you know, it's like, he'll say like, oh man, that must, that must really suck. Or that's, that's, that sounds so hard. That that's really frustrating. And even though I know it's part of the formula that we write about in the book, it's, it's clear that he's not saying the words as part of the formula, but that the formula arose from the spirit in which he's, he approaches me, which is like deeply caring. I know that he has my my best interests at heart. And so from and from that, and, and also, you know, he doesn't lead with advice. Mm. He leads with questions. And a lot of the time, his questions allow me to say, oh, I know what to do. <laughs> right. And I almost like like one of the one of the hallmarks of a good coaching session is that the coachee at some point will feel a little bit sheepish. Right, like, oh yeah, like that was that should have been obvious, I sh right? And of course, it never is. But Peter has this ability to to draw out my best in a way where I don't feel like I have to hide anything from him, or I don't I don't have to defend any autonomy because it's not being impinged upon in any way. It's great. As I send the conversation here back to Anne, I do have to say in in reading much of the book and hearing the two of you now, uh, I'm already, I think, absorbing many of the lessons, including a willingness to take in guidance and then make it one's own guidance, which is uh, how we, pretty much what you just said. So rendering advice in a way where people think, ah, I, I kind of knew that. I, I, sh I, I should have known that. I should have applied that. So anyway, thank you for that. And... <laughs> Uh, thank you, Michael. Again, I'm Ann Greenhall with Mikey Seam, and together we are speaking with Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson about their new book, You Can Change Other People, on Leadership in Action, Sirius XM Channel 132. So I'm just going to pause and kind of recap here. You know, we started the conversation uh, thinking about, talking about how you met, how you brought up that great comment about the difference between coaching and teaching which I think of as a difference between pulling others along as opposed to pushing them along. And when I think about um, pushing and pulling, I think about leadership and leadership styles. And this is a show about leadership in action and styles that are either empowering, you know, where we bring out the best of, in others or styles that are more directive, a little bit more 
a little bit more top down. So if the pulling and the empowering style as a coach or leader is the one that I'm hearing is the most um, productive for change, how about we dig in a little deeper and talk about some of those steps, the ways of changing. And I know you gave us uh, readers a great acronym, which I really love. You both have a wonderful sense of humor. Alley-oop <laughs> is the acronym. And number one, the first step is getting others um, to be allies, allies with you. So um, Peter, how about I start with you? Can you talk about step one in this process of changing others? Yeah, and and I'll and you know I'll I'll do this in a way that also addresses the issue that you both brought up that we haven't really addressed, which is you know, everybody always says you can't change other people. Like, why yeah. do they say that? Like, why does everybody say? And first of all, by the way, when they say that, they're trying to change you, right? Like the only time anyone ever says that, they're trying to get <laughs> you to do something differently. So they don't believe it. But let's just say, you know, like let's just you know put that like put down that line. Um. The reason we think you can't change other people is because our attempts to change other people almost always fail. Like, and that is not because people aren't willing to be changed. And it's not that people don't want to change. It's that the way we approach them creates the resistance we then complain about. Right. Beautifully so, said. Yeah. And, and, and so we, we approach people's critics when we want to change them. We tell them what's wrong with them. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when someone's criticizing me and telling me everything's wrong with me, my reaction is not to say, great, then help me be better. My reaction is is to go into some shame. Right. I'll start to feel badly, like, oh, my God, I'm not good enough. And they're complaining about me, et cetera. And the things we do with shame are easy. We don't want to feel shame. Shame is the thing we want to feel the least of all of the feelings we don't want to feel. And so the best way to not feel shame is to either go into denial or defensiveness, right? I'm going to deny what you're saying because, you know, if if what you're saying is I talk too much and I, I'm going to say that I don't talk too much, then there's no reason for me to feel shame. You're just a jerk for, you know, complaining to me about me, you know, or I'm going to defend it or I'm going to explain why I talk too much or, you know, like nobody ever listens to me. So if I didn't talk too much, I wouldn't get a word in or, you know, like, um, and, and there's another thing too, which is it, it might just be a blind spot. Like I might just not be aware of it. And as a blind spot, I go into denial and defensiveness because the blind spot is denial and defensiveness, right? Like that's the definition. <laughs> And, and when people tell me, oh, I know my blind spots, you know, my answer is, though, look, by definition, you don't know your blind spots. Like, you literally don't know your blind spots. They are blind spots. And if it's a blind spot, then you're not maliciously going into denial of defensiveness. You literally don't see it. So if someone tells you, you know, you're doing something and you just literally don't see it, right, because it's a blind spot, and it comes at you in a, a little bit of an aggressive or annoyed or frustrated way. Like, you know, like it's a little too much to ask people to like, you know, be open to, you know, being in a productive conversation when they're being attacked. Like it's very hard. It's too high a bar. 
to ask people to be open to a productive conversation when they're being attacked, right? It's just, it's just not a fair dynamic. So, um, so the first thing that we say is you got to approach as an ally. Like you're not there to criticize someone. Everybody in, in leadership knows how to give people feedback. Everybody knows how to give people feedback, right? We've been trained to do it. We know how to do it. It's important to do it. I've written articles about it. Everybody knows how to feedback. Very few people know how to improve other people's performance, right? Now, true leadership is not about feedback. The reason we give feedback is to improve people's performance. But if you look at the data, feedback actually hurts their performance. Feedback does, is not a, is not a, 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 it's a limited tool that might be part of a useful development process, but it is not the development process. Feedback in and of itself is cathartic for the person who's giving the feedback and very ineffective as a standalone in terms of improving people's performance. So our the focus of our culture on like ruthlessly honest, right? Which is usually 90% ruthless and 10% honest. But it's like this like, you know, being ruthlessly honest or really like, you know, driving on the point. And let me be really clear and I'm totally transparent. Look, I'm just being honest with you. You want me to be honest with you? I'm just being honest with you, right? All of that stuff is like about me, the person giving the feedback. It's not about the person I want to help. And it's actually not helpful. So what we need is a process. And that process starts with being an ally, which says, I'm, I'm actually, my focus, the outcome that I want is to help you to perform better. And, and that's not about me. That's about you. People don't resist change. They resist being changed. Like, you know, you want to change me, forget it. But, but if... If, you know, if it's up to me, I change all the time, right? I've got three kids like that. You know, that in and of itself was a very big decision to make a massive change in my life. And then now I have a dog. I'm, I just turned 54. I, my first dog in my life I have at 53. <laughs> Nobody forced me to make that decision. I mean, my 14, my 16-year-old did do a PowerPoint presentation advocating for a dog, right? But she didn't force me to have a dog. Like, I made that decision myself. She influenced me. <laughs> uh, that's a great example of being an ally. Peter, you, your, uh, your conversation about feedback is reminding me of uh, someone Mike and I have had the pleasure of talking with and hearing talk. And I know you'll know this day, Marshall Goldsmith who talks about the difference between feedback and what he calls feed forward. <laughs> and what's wrong with feedback is that we're always telling people about what they did wrong in the past. And of course, you can't go back and change the past. What's done is done. And rather than thinking in terms of feedback, we should be thinking about feed forward, about what we, what opportunity we have in the future. How can we how can we change? So I really appreciate your comment about how feedback is part of the process, but it is not about about improving performance. You say that one of the agendas here is to help. I'm going to quote here from you: is to help your coworker shift from complaining to problem solving. <laughs> What's a tactic for doing exactly that? We can all relate to the question. What's a tactic for solving the problem? Mm. Howie, why don't you start? 
Well, so I think that, that's actually about the second step, which is after we've established ourselves as an ally, the, what we want to do right then is like, okay, let's let's show how smart we are and roll up our sleeves and get and get to that problem. And instead, we advocate to identify an energizing outcome. And it could be the other person's outcome, or if you're in it with them, if you're a coworker or a boss or a spouse, it could be a shared outcome. But we're specifically asking, like, what's the positive future you want to create? And that immediately gets people out of the fight or flight brain pattern that leads to complaining and creates um, a, a different set of lenses to look at the world for where's the good stuff, where's the low-hanging fruit instead of the predator. That's great. Peter, what would you add? I hate complaining employees. I, 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 you know, I talk with my wife all about it all the time. It's, they're really frustrating. They're, um, uh, yeah, what, you know, what I, what I would say is- We don't realize we're complaining half the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I, I think, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm seeing this. I know we don't have a lot of time here, so I'll, I'll be quick about this, but I see this in, in people all the time. And the urge, the urge of the person listening to collude in 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 to in support of the person who's complaining is is really high because you know we want to empathize. And there's a way in which empathy can actually get in the way of change. Yep. There's a way in which empathy is absolutely the lubricant of change, right? But it's it, you're you're finding that middle ground where you're not empathizing so much that you end up just colluding, and now you both leave angry at the person they were complaining about. Yeah, that's great. Let's do a cutaway to Anne. All right, very good. Well, let me just remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Anne Greenhall. I'm here today with Mike Yuseem. And together we have the pleasure of speaking with Howie Jacobson and Peter Bregman, authors of You Can Change Other People. I'm wondering if you could give us an example from your experience that helps us see ally, you know, the ally at work and outcomes at work. Maybe I'll direct this to uh, Peter. I'll direct it to you. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, let's let's. Um... Let's just use an example, and we'll use an example that we sort of play out in the book uh, a little bit, which is um, you, you've got someone uh, on your team, and, and actually, I'll just use the names that we use uh, in the book. So um, Ben is is uh, leading a team and is complaining about uh, Ramona, right? And Ramona is very difficult on the team, disagreeable talks over people, doesn't let things go, uh, is, is a little aggressive, bold. Uh, and, and the rest of the team, you know, gets along well and, and, and works collaboratively together. And so, um, so Ben is really frustrated with Ramona uh, and doesn't know what to do. And let's just say you're talking to Ben. Right. So you're talking to the leader of the team. The leader of the team is coming to you complaining about this person on his team. Right. And this is what we call a silver platter opportunity. We talked earlier in the first half of the show about just complaining like Ben's not necessarily looking for 
uh, an, an answer to solve this. You don't know that. He's not saying, hey, help me figure out how to deal with Ramona. He's just coming to you and he's saying, oh my God, this person, and she talks over people and it's really difficult. And so um, you're, there's lots of things you might do in that point, right? This is like pre-step one. Like you might be annoyed with Ben. You might be annoyed with Ramona. You might just be annoyed with venting in general. Like there might be all sorts of things that go through. So the first thing that we suggest you do in terms of being an ally is to check in with yourself. Like, what am, am I frustrated right now? Am I angry? Am I annoyed that Ben's such a complainer? Am I jumping in with, you know, I, I know exactly what to do because I've had this solution. I'm just sort of biting my tongue and not giving it. What's going on? What's my intent? And, and, um, and connect with the intent that comes out of a place of care, right? Like, the, like if you're angry or frustrated or whatever, underneath that is usually care because if there's something you don't care about, then you're not going to be triggered. You're not going to be angry or frustrated, et cetera. So you get in touch with your own intent. And then you get in touch with what you imagine their good intent may be, right? Like, like they, they might be complaining. They might be sexist. They might be like, what, who knows what's going on for them? But for you to sort of think, you know, how, what can I imagine would be a positive intent of this person? You know, they want a team that works collaboratively together and gets along and, and they don't know how to, you know, they're in over their head in terms of how to deal with this one team member. So once you've like, you know, detoxed yourself and detoxed your sense of them, then you go into what we call the three, it's a three-step formula for, for getting permission for being an ally. And that's empathize, express confidence, and ask permission. We always need permission. People, in if they're going to change, need ownership over their change. So if I just jump in and give them advice, it's going to come off as a critic. I want to be an ally. I want to support them in what they want to achieve, right? So then I'll say, wow, that sounds really hard. If it's true, I'll say, you know, I've had people like that on my teams before too. And it's just, it's a struggle and it's really hard. And I, and, and I can understand, I might be very specific about my empathy. I also know that you are, you know, like I've seen you lead teams before and I know how capable you are at managing a team to be effective. And just the fact that you're frustrated about this speaks to your care about the team. And I know that, that that's important to you and you've built teams with that kind of care. That's the confidence piece. And then ask permission, which sounds something like, do you want to think this through together? Like, would you like to think this through with me? I'm happy to think it through if you want to. Now they might say no. Right. In which case the answer is okay. Right. I mean, like, don't fight their no. When people have said no to me, nine times out of 10, they come back to me. Now, why is that? Is because the no is often about, about um, solidifying their own independence. Like, if I say no to you and you push, then you're still a critic. Right. And I know that. So I'm going to say no because I'm going to it's going to be my choice. And then when I come back to you, that's truly me. Now, they may not come back to me, which is okay too. They you know, we're, we're we didn't we didn't name the book you can change absolutely anyone anytime whenever you want to to meet your needs. Like that was not the title of the book. Um, so 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 here, you know, it's like you're empathizing, you're expressing confidence and you're offering. You're asking permission. And, and once they say, yeah, I would love to talk about it with you, now we're off and running to step two. 
Now we've sort of done the ally. The alley-oop is ally, and these are the four steps. Ally, and then uh, 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 outcome, opportunity, and plan. O-O-P, ally, O-O-P. So then once we've gotten permission, we're at the outcome step. Okay, and how about, and to say a little, yeah, maybe Howie, want to say a little more. So what in that situation with Ben and Ramona, what outcome uh, did Ben identify? Right, so very often when someone is, you know, in a struggle, they're going to identify an outcome that looks like, let's get rid of the problem. So it might be, I just, I just want a team, you know, at his best, he might say, I just want a team that gets along. Or I wish I, I wish I could get Ramona off the team, right? And so what we want to do for an outcome is we want it to be positive, clear, and meaningful. So positive um, is really about like, well, what would you if, if if Ramona were off the team, what would you have instead? And I said, well, we'd have a, we'd have a team that kind of get that gets along, and then you know. In terms of like then like what's what's meaningful about a team that gets along? Say, well, what would that do for you? What 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 would that get you? So as well, we'd come up with better ideas, we would execute better. And at that point, you say, so so what I'm hearing is you want a high performing team. Right? Yes. And then you, you can see like a little spark of excitement, right? When you hit an outcome that's positive um, and meaningful, the, the you know, then their energy changes. It's like okay now, and that's when you know okay now we're now we've gotten somewhere. Now Ben is a little bit excited. He's not so focused on the problem with Ramona or the dysfunction of the team, but where he wants to get to. Now he's already his brain is already feeding forward, and and you know depending on the person, it could take a while. You know, so very often it takes a bunch of questions and a lot of time. Uh, Peter uh, did a demo on a a group co- a call with a bunch of coaches where getting through the outcome step took 45 minutes, right? Just, um, just to get that point where the person was clearly excited about chasing this thing. But sometimes it's as quick as one or two questions, or sometimes they, they come up with it right away. But once you know, once you see that excitement, which is why we talk about an energizing outcome, you can see the energy shift, then you're ready to move on to step three. Very good. How about one more for me? And then, Mike, I'll hand back to you. Um, When you gave this example, Peter, initially you called it a silver platter opportunity. It's a silver platter opportunity for the person, you know, who is leading and and coaching Ben. What is the silver platter opportunity for Ben here? Well, you know, it's a silver platter opportunity because if I see a problem that you don't see, then I've got to bring you like to a place where maybe you and I see eye to eye. Like that's a much harder, we talk about how to get there, but it's a harder place to get to than if you're already complaining, then you've already identified a problem. Now you just need me to be an ally in helping you solve it. And, and so that the reason we think of it as a silver platter opportunity is it's so much easier in some ways. Like we often don't know what to do when people are complaining. And, you know, if we're even as, and we can handle it as a critic, like we might say something as a critic, like, are you just going to complain all day or do you want to do something about it? Right. That's an ineffective way. That's like, 
tipping the silver platter off the hand. Um, but but it's but you know the silver platter opportunity, well handled, is is to help them move from complaining to problem solving. Very good. I'm going to hand to Mike, but first remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall with Mike Useem, and together we are speaking with Peter Bregman and Howie Jacobson about their book, You Can Change Other People. Mike. Peter and Howie, as we begin to come towards the end here, I've got a very pragmatic question and then a more conceptual um, statement I'd like you to react to. On, on the pragmatic question, you have written that one problem we run into in providing feedback is that our feedback is seen as criticism and not as constructive, useful information. So if, uh, if you're on the giving end of that feedback and you quickly recognize by the facial expression, even if unexpressed in words, that the recipient is taking it as criticism and that's not constructive, what, what are one or two steps you can take to get beyond, in a sense, your own shortcoming in giving feedback in a way that's not working? So Howie, why don't we start with you on that one and then over to Peter. Yeah, so in our model, we think of, of feedback, of giving, giving advice as a nutrient. And you only, you only need nutrients when you can't get them inside your body. So, right, like cats can make vitamin C, so they don't need to eat oranges. Humans need citrus fruits and other fruits and vegetables because we can't make vitamin C ourselves. So... What I want to do preferentially is to ask questions to get you to come up with your own ideas, right? And, and to do that first. And then, you know, so then, you know, Ben comes up with five or six things to do. And I can, I already know like, oh, I have a great idea for Ben. What I want to do is make sure that I'm still um, playing nice with his psychic immune system. So I'll say, hey, I've got a thought here. Would, would it be okay if I shared it? And at that point, again, I'm getting permission. And, and I can say, I have, a, I have a thought. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. And so rather than saying, here's what you should do, I'm getting permission to share some thought, advice, feedback, an offering. And I'm giving explicit permission for Ben to shoot it down, to explain why it's not going to work, why it's not appropriate. So again, he has all the power. There's, I'm not trying to take away any control, ownership, or agency. And if I do overstep, which will happen, I will get excited and, and say something and I can, I can feel the resistance. I'll apologize. I'll say, you know, I got so excited. I, bl I blurted that out. I see we're, we're not a team right now or something, you know, some language like that. Um, I apologize. I want to, I want to step back, check in with you and see what you, what you're thinking right now. So there's nothing, there's nothing, um, you know, we don't have to do this perfectly. We, this isn't, you know, um, open heart surgery. We get to be human. We get to be ourselves, make mistakes. Um, you know, just don't sew them up and leave the, the scalpel in there. So, Howie, I, I love the uh, line of argument. And the metaphor that comes to mind is mowing a very thick lawn. So if you've got mm -hmm. a hand-pushed lawnmower... You, you go into the grass, you don't get very far, just back up and take another run at it. So learn what your problem is, back up a bit and come back at it. Peter, what would you add? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would. I think it's less adding than reinforcing. Like I, I, something that I say to clients all the time is own everything you can possibly own. As soon as you make a misstep and you see it, own it. Just say, God, you know, like I, I could, I could see how, you know, and even use the language of the book. Like I really want to. I like my intent is to approach this as an ally, and I could see that I just did this wrong. Like that I did not approach, like what I really care about is, is, you know, where your next step is and I want to support you. And I could see how what I just did, didn't do that. Uh, so I apologize. So that's great. So here's my second more conceptual question. We do notice from the business page of uh, any newspaper that CEOs and senior managers are rewarded well if they do well, but they're also pushed out of office at a pretty high rate. So just to re remind us all, Mattel, the toy maker, at one point went through four CEOs in four years. Chief executives at uh, Boeing, City, and other big companies have been pushed out as well. So on balance, as you have talked with some people in the C-suite and observed uh, many others, do you think that's a CEO problem or a board problem? And what I mean by that is, do you think that the board failed to provide the kind of guidance and feedback uh, to change the CEO? Or conversely, do you think they just simply hired the wrong person who could not be changed or could not be assisted in, in revamping the way they run the enterprise? So, Peter, why don't we, why don't we start with you on that one? Um, you sure you don't want to start with Howie on that one? No, I'll, I'll, uh, let, me, let, me, let me take this. So, um, so what I would say is you are pointing to a, um, a problem with a tremendous amount of complexity to it and, and, and somewhat dichotomizing the, the answer. And so I'm going to push back on, on the, on the choices of, is it a board problem or is it a CEO problem? Um, uh, I, I see this all the time. I see challenges between boards and CEOs. I see challenges within boards. I think, you know, there's, there are very few boards that are super smoothly operating. There's, you know, on boards, there are, there are, um, uh, people who have influence. There's people who have less influence. There's personal dynamics. There's, um, you know, personality issues, there's preferences and biases. Uh, and, and there's also, you know, I would say in my work with CEOs, a huge percentage of it, and these are incredibly skilled communicators, right? You don't become a CEO if you are not already a skilled communicator. And I would say a good 80% of the challenges that we work with and that I help them with is around how do you manage relationships uh, on the board? How do you manage relationships with, with other senior executives? How do you align your team? I mean, sometimes the issue is a, you know, a, a, a huge issue around team, uh, around internal team alignment. Sometimes the board is absolutely right. To, to fire the CEO. Sometimes the CEO isn't managing the relationship with the board. Sometimes the CEO isn't managing the relationship with their executive team. Sometimes the, the you know, the, there's amazing individual contributors on the team, but they see themselves as the head of sales and the head of marketing and the head of, and the biggest challenge that the CEO is struggling with is how do I get to see this 
group of incredibly skilled executives who are in their silos as an executive leadership team? How do I see them as leaders of the company as opposed to leaders of their function? And, and I would say, you know, there are very, very few times when a CEO fails in an organization that that failure is due to, oh, my strategy was wrong, right? It is almost always that I have uh, not been as effective as I can and should be as a leader, both in my relationships with the team and aligning and creating a cohesive, aligned team that is collaborating to achieve a very, very clear focus, or my relationships with the board and with different members of the board. And so like that's, you know, that might just be the lens through which I see it, but every time I've seen those failures and, and those challenges and, and, you know, churning senior leaders, it is almost always to do with leadership uh, strengths as opposed to any other, you know, kind of independent yeah. Uh, strategic weaknesses. So Peter, very well put. And I think yeah. at this point, we're close to the end. We do need to do a wrap up here, our after action review. Yeah. So ordinarily, Howard, I, I, Howard, I try to get you involved, but I think we need to kick into the, the summing up at this point. Yeah, we're, we're certainly heading there. And um, maybe just really quickly before we do, I think our listeners would be interested to know, at least I am, <laughs> I'm one listener, about your education and what prepared you to coach CEOs. Not everybody gets to coach CEOs. <laughs> and I think another something else you have in common, in addition to writing books together, is, am I right in understanding that you both are graduates of Princeton, undergrad? Yes. Is that right? All right, Peter, I Mike knows I work closely with a lot of undergraduates at the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm just curious, what was your major, Peter? Uh, I was a history major, which was right. very, very practical from my perspective. I didn't want to major in anything particular. So I just picked a period of history and I said, oh, I'm going to look at the art of this period. And I'm going to look at the philosophy of this period. And I'm going to look at the literature. I was very, very interested in like pre, just pre-World War II to the to present day. I was very interested in like Holocaust stuff and 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 I um, so I I basically just majored in that time period uh, and did all sorts of different classes that were all related to that time period. All right. And Howie, how about you? Yeah, I majored in the month of October, the year three hundred and sixty three. So <laughs> I, I was also a history major, but I was a little more specific. I uh, I. <laughs> I looked. I looked at uh, ar archaeology of temples and synagogues in the ancient world. <laughs> All right. So, listeners, please know <laughs> there are a wide variety of things that you can study that can lead you to incredible, incredible careers. So, but let us do our after-action review since time is waning. I'm going to, uh, Mike, start with you and then uh, Howie ask you to put a word in, Peter, and then I'll just put the cherry on top. Okay, Mike, your your takeaway. Yeah, well, so Howie and Peter, um, th thank you for the commentary. And I think the key point that really emerges uh, from what you've said and also from my own look at your book is a sense of optimism, well-placed, that individuals can improve with good feedback, with supportive alliance uh, with people, family, friend, friends, and coaches, 
and that most people, maybe not all, but most fall in that category of coachable, uh, of uh, advisable. And thus, I, I love the optimism because it says that this is an area which is probably underappreciated, but extremely powerful in its potential if we can learn to give the feedback, the coaching, the commentary that really works with them. So that's from me, Anne. Very good, Mike. All right, Howie, how about you? Um, yeah, I'd like to encourage people to, to start applying this process in easy situations. So, so like find people who already want to change, who are clear that they want to change and are clear about the direction that they want to change, even if it's just from like, I want to stop doing this or I want to lose weight or I want to stop being unhealthy or I want to stop um, interrupting in meetings and, and alienating my colleagues. Right. And then apply that with the, the process with them rather than going out and finding people who don't know they want to change or think they don't like we can, you know, the book goes into those as well. But why not? Why not start easy? And because we think we only have two choices, either I have to, either I'm going to be a critic and I'm going to get resistance or I just shut my mouth and I just act as a role model. And of course, being a good role model is important but you're missing a lot of opportunities. So I'd say ease, ease into this and start looking for all the ways in which you have been holding back out of a mistaken belief that there's only one way to do this and it doesn't work. All right, Peter, very good. How about to you now from Howie to Peter? Um, I, first of all, I've loved the conversation. So it's, you know, like to me, but, but I, this is, this is um, uh, connected to, to the takeaway, which is, you know, People love good conversations. They like to be in good conversations. So, you know, one, one takeaway I'm hoping people get is if you can make the change conversation a good conversation, like there was no point in this conversation where I felt like attacked by you. I felt like you wanted to know things and you were curious and you asked good questions and you laughed at my jokes. And like, that's great. Like that, that's the conversation I want to be in. And so if we can make the change conversations flow like a conversation like this flows, which they absolutely can, then, then you know, we're a million steps ahead of, of where we were beforehand. And, and then to, you know, uh, recognize that, um, I guess it's reinforcing a little bit what Howie said, but I would say, don't rely on your instincts. All right, around, very good. Around this, right? Excellent. Because and I'm going to chime in here because we're coming up on a real hard stop. And I want to thank you, Peter, and thank you, Howie, so much for being here with us today and talking about your new book, You Can Change Other People. I also want to thank our producer, Dana Cash, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm here today with Mike Yuseem, and we've been, you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Come back next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.